The filthy Roman backstreet was wrapped in darkness. Foul-smelling water trickled between the stones underfoot, and a single guttering candle burned in a window high above. A drunken young man, his clothes tattered, stumbled into a doorway and then threw up violently. Across the street, two prostitutes, their faces garishly painted, cackled with delight as they watched him slide down the doorpost into a pool of his own vomit. He looked up sharply, and they noticed the angry purple bruise forming around his left eye. Yelling a colorful curse at them, he tried to clamber to his feet, but he slipped and fell again right back into his own vomit. Howling with laughter, they turned the corner and disappeared. He sat in the gloom for a couple of minutes, staring up at the flickering candle, lost in his own hazy thoughts. And then he pulled himself to his feet again and weaved his way toward the doorway at the end of the street. He hit the door hard with his shoulder and it crashed back on its hinges, toppling him into the inky blackness of the hallway. Cursing and groaning, he clattered noisily up the staircase. Pushing open another door, he tumbled into this large attic studio and collapsed into a chair in the middle of the open floor. The candle, now burning low, sat in the open window behind him. As the light shone over his shoulder, he contemplated the canvas mounted on the easel before him. There were four figures, gathered in a tight huddle in the center of the painting, surrounded by a thick, impenetrable gloom. Their faces illuminated by some bright light, but everything else lay in darkness. For perhaps half an hour, the young man pondered before the canvas. Then with a start, he leapt up, frantically began mixing paints. Thick, oily purples, browns, grays, greens, stabbing a brush into the mixture. He, he worked frantically, frantically, painting for hours. As dawn began to color the city and the soft crimson light of the sun began to appear, the painter, now somewhat sober but exhausted, fell back into his chair and examined his work. He closed his bloodshot eyes and nodded. It was finished. On the canvas, three disciples stood in a tight group around the newly resurrected Jesus. Matthew and John look on in wonder as an incredulous Thomas pushes his finger into the wounded Christ's side Jesus, his eyes etched with compassion, held Thomas's wrist, keeping the hand steady. The scene was shocking and extraordinarily tender all at once. Without a doubt, a masterpiece. And in his chair, Caravaggio slept. Dozens of well-known artists tried their hands at painting this same scene, doubting Thomas, John chapter 20. It's famous. Artists who at the time were better trained, more known, more respected than Caravaggio. They, they executed these technically perfect depictions of the scene time and again. Yet 400 years later, Caravaggio's painting is the only one that the world can't seem to forget. Caravaggio was a known drunk, a frequenter of whores, and was famous for all of his bar fights. In fact, today, if you go back and you do research, I've been reading a biography on, on Caravaggio. If you, you do the research, his life is etched not so much in his paintings or his journals, but in his, his criminal record. 
This man was arrested like every couple months of his entire adult life. His art, like his life, was almost entirely dark. But in the midst of that darkness, there is a light. Wherever Christ is, for Caravaggio, there's still hope. Wherever he is, there is light. It's dark. Like in the middle of a thunderstorm when the power goes out and you can't see anything. But then the lightning flashes and just for a second you get a, a picture. It's, it's etched on your mind. It flashes for a minute and then it's gone. This is what Caravaggio's work was like. In his very dark, broken life, he would get these snapshots. This flash of thunder and lightning. And he would furiously paint to try and keep it so that it wouldn't leave him. Dozens of better artists painted this scene, yet Caravaggio surpassed them all because he knew. He knew what it meant to feel isolated. He knew what it meant to grope through darkness. He knew that nausea of the soul that we call doubt. May I submit to you that Caravaggio could communicate that because he was that. Our text for today is John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to follow along. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24, the story of doubting Thomas. You probably know it. Now, I have read a dozen or so technical commentaries on the Gospel of John at this point, And I really could spend this morning giving you a technically accurate explanation of the text. We could go through the historical background, and we will. And we could go through the Greek and Aramaic, and we could, we could unpack some of that, and we'll do some of that. But I am afraid that if all you get today is a technically accurate depiction of this, you'll miss it. It'll be lifeless expressionless and forgettable like all the other portraits. Today what we need is we need what Caravaggio had. This is not a story for those who sit outside and judge it in some logical way. This is a personal story. This is a story for men like Thomas, like Caravaggio, like me, and I think like many of you. Let me say from the get-go, I hate doubt. I, I really do. Like, I wish to God that every single one of us could read the Bible, take its word, and fully believe it 100%, and never question it. I really, really do. But here's my experience. In a, in a room about this size with this many people, there's going to be two or three of you who have the gift of faith. And that means this. That means that you can read the words and you never once in your life question anything that God said. Like, the Bible says it. I believe it. That's good enough. And let me say, I am not making fun of you. That is awesome. I love being around you. I really do. You are an encouragement. You are the people that, oh man, I love that. But then there's the rest of us. Where like a giant disembodied hand could show up and write on the wall, this is God. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I've seen things like that before. Come on. Like it's sick. Our hearts are slow to believe. So when we start down this journey today, I, I want to, before we dive headlong into this rabbit hole called doubt, I, I want to set up a few, few pitfalls but that I dearly, dearly, as a church, want to avoid. When we deal with this topic of doubt, let, let me say on the one hand, traditionally, many, many churches, many Christian leaders have dealt with doubt by suppressing all doubt. Anyone who questions our faith 
is the enemy. We're believers. We believe. And so someone speaks up. Yes? Uh, I'm not sure if I believe everything in the Bible. To which everyone goes, <gasps> and the response is to, to read the Bible more loudly to you. What? All Scripture is God-breathed. I will pray for you. These communities live by a code that we don't talk about our doubts. If you struggle with your doubts, you keep it to yourself and pretend like you believe like the rest of us. The problem with this is that this is a fake faith. And fake faith won't heal you. It won't make you more like Jesus. And it will not save you. And at GVF, we will not tolerate that. We have to be a safe place to struggle. If we can't be honest about our doubts, we can never deal with our doubts. But sometimes this pendulum goes from over here all the way over here, where from suppressing all doubts, all questions are bad, to over here all questions are good and doubts rule. It gets to the point where doubts are given so much attention that every time anyone has the least question, everything has to stop. So let me tell you a story. I know a man who literally walked away. He one time said he loved Jesus, read the Bible, believed all of it, and completely walked away from the faith. And if you ask him, why? How could you walk away from Jesus? Here's what I'll tell you. Rock badgers. He will tell you. Leviticus chapter 11 verse 5 says that the rock badger chews its cud. However, modern zoology explains that the rock badgers do not technically chew their cud. They participate in a simpler digestive process that only looks like they chew their cud. Therefore, he concludes, the scriptures are wrong. They're full of errors. You can't know God. To which I say, what? Did that just happen? Rock badgers? Who cares? Okay. You threw away Jesus because of rock pictures. It has become fashionable in our world today to let our doubts rule us. To say that if you have any questions that you cannot answer, therefore you have to throw away your faith. It's called agnostic. Literally means without knowledge. In fact, it is promoted. It's the best thing you can be today is to say, I don't know. Agnosticism is easy to hold. It is not offensive. It is tolerant. And it is the least violent way to refuse God's authority. But don't be mistaken. It's still a refusal of God's authority. Today, if we follow Jesus in John chapter 20... He won't let us get away with either of these pitfalls. And he's going to graciously meet us in our doubts. Here's the context. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Let me lay this out first. For three years, there's this guy named Thomas. You guys have heard of him. And he's been following around Jesus. But then on one terrible Friday, what happens? Jesus is executed, he's murdered, he's humiliated, it's public, he's naked, it's disgusting, and Thomas sees it all. The man that he followed for three years, he's dead, he's really dead. And so what do they do? They run, they hide, they 
They live in fear. And then Sunday morning, some women go to the tomb. And the tomb, it, it's empty. Peter and John, they run. And it says in John chapter 20, verse 8, that John sees the grave clothes folded up. And it says he sees and believes. And then Mary Magdalene, what, what happens? She's outside the tomb and she's weeping and weeping and weeping. She sees a gardener and she says, do you know where Jesus is? Do you know where my Lord is? But it's no gardener. And she sees and believes. And she runs off to tell the rest of the disciples, I've seen him. He's alive. Later that night, they all gather into this locked room. And they're there. And Jesus shows up in the middle of the locked room. And it says they see and believe. So get this. John sees and believes. Mary sees and believes. They see and believe. So at this point, John is leading us to this point where we're supposed to ask right now, but what about me? What about those of us who don't see? Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He didn't see. And he didn't believe. Aren't you thankful for Thomas? Like, I, I get that. I read that, and that makes sense to me. Like, you see Thomas, and Thomas is not an outsider. Like, you even see, they call him Didymus. Didymus is just another name. It's a nickname. It literally means the twin. Like, you, you get in Jesus' posse, and what's he got? He's got Peter, the rock. And he's got James and John, the sons of thunder. And he got Thomas, the twin. Right? Who calls you by your nickname? Is it a stranger? No, it's your buddies. It's your family. Thomas is an insider. He's part of this. And Thomas, don't get me wrong, Thomas is truly an insider. He was truly committed to following Jesus Christ. He had given up everything and taken great personal risk. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus doing his Jesus stuff. And he says, you know what, guys? I think it's time to go back to Judea. And they all say, Jesus, that is just a fantastic idea. Except one little thing I think, I think you might be forgetting. Um, last time we went there, not so long ago, they tried to kill us. You want to go back there? And Jesus again says some of his Jesus stuff. You know, while it's still light of day, we must walk until there's night. And everyone's like, I have no idea what he means except we're going. And then Thomas speaks up in chapter 11, verse 16. And he thinks he's following Jesus to his death. And Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let's go, that we may die with him. Thomas is fearlessly committed to Jesus Christ. I mean, he was ready to die for him. But then a couple weeks later, he didn't know what to do when Jesus died for him instead. And that's when doubt set in. So in one moment, I'm ready to die for you. I've given up everything for you. And just a couple days later, 
I don't know what to do with you. I don't know who you are. I get that. So I have the privilege of preaching, which means I stand up here and I tell you that Jesus is all good, all sufficient. He is God and man. He is the perfect life. He is who I want to be, and he is worth giving up everything for. And I believe it to the core of my being. But then I go out there on Mondays just like you, and I see the hurt and the pettiness and the distractions and the temptations. And I hear that same voice that most of you probably hear. Do you really, do you really believe this? Is that really true? Like I sit there in the mornings and have my little quiet time, like many of you do, and I'm reading the Bible, and I read about this God who is all good, all sovereign, and I worship him, and I sincerely do it to the the core of my being. And I say with Thomas, like, if he called me to die, I would die right now for him. And then I go to Africa, and I witness firsthand unthinkable poverty and suffering. And I ask, where's God in all this? Like, I get that. It's not that I don't know the right answers or even that I don't believe them. But sometimes, in this messed up world, the idea that God loves me, that God is all good, When life doesn't seem so. That God calls me to be holy when I'm tempted. Sometimes it just sounds too good to be true. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Verse 25. When Thomas hears this, this sounds too good to be true. Thomas had lost everything. And he's like, yeah, you you saw him? I saw him too. I saw him die. Look at his last words there at the end. I will not believe. So I wonder, when I, when I look at this, and when I look at Thomas over here in chapter 11, and then just a few chapters later, he's like, I will not believe. I wonder, I wonder where this doubt comes from. Does Thomas really need more evidence to believe? And to make it more personal, do we really need more evidence to believe that Jesus is who he said he is? If I told you, um, you know, earlier this week, strange thing happened to me. This dead guy, he came, stopped by. He's really alive. He stopped by. We had coffee. It, it, like, it beleaguers the mind. It's just stupid. It's ridiculous. Like, th- things like that don't happen, right? So, so... It, On the face of it, this might seem just unbelievable. But now what if this dead guy, Jesus, what if during his lifetime he said crazy things like, I am the resurrection. Before Abraham was, I am. What what if he went around in life and you actually saw him do things like, oh, I don't know, tell a storm to stop and it obeyed. Tell a blind man to open your eyes and see, and he did. Tell a dead man to come forth, and he did. What if this Jesus had actually predicted his own death, actually said, I'm going to be betrayed, condemned, mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed, and then three days later rise again? What if he had repeatedly said that? What, what if 11, 12, 13 of your closest friends, men and women that you deeply trust and respect, 
all swore that this is what just happened. Does Thomas really need more evidence to believe? You know, I I look at this scene and I think the evidence is swirling all around in his mind. Jesus did claim to be God. He really did seem to have power over nature and death. He really did predict that he was going to die and rise again. And now all of my most trusted friends are telling me that he did this. So what does Thomas conclude? I will not believe. Okay, I'm not saying that Jesus rising from the dead is logical or normal. It's not something you expect. Like, you know, when you get on 76, you expect there to be a traffic jam, right? Like, when you see Lindsay Lohan, you expect her to be in jail. When the Cowboys play the Eagles, you expect the Cowboys to win, right? (laughs) Rising from the dead, though. That's a different category. This is not expected. That's not normal. This isn't, and then, um, so I'm not saying this is normal, but let's agree that if you spent three years with Jesus, we've given up on normal. Like, what? The man walked on water. You were one of the guys who was like, hand out more loaves, and you're handing out loaves of bread and fishes to 5,000 people. You're like, huh? Like, you're there at the tomb, and you see a dead man coming out. He stinketh, Lord. Don't, don't go too close. And he walks out of the, Lazarus walks out of his tomb. We are way beyond normal here. But Thomas, here's the question. What do you do when the logical conclusion breaks all your categories? What do you do when the logical conclusion breaks your heart? Thomas will only believe if Jesus meets his conditions. I want you to look at this. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe unless you meet my conditions. This is tempting, isn't it? Have you ever done this? Of course you haven't. Let's say, have you ever heard someone do this? I will not believe unless you can tell me how a good God could allow so much evil. I will not believe unless you can explain the dinosaurs. I will not believe until you can tell me why my friend has cancer. I will not believe until I have that kind of experience. I will not believe until you can tell me about rock badgers. Okay, those are good questions. Those are questions that, like I said, we want to be a safe place to struggle. Those are good questions, except the last one. If you come to me with rock badgers, no, not going to work. These are questions we should wrestle with and wrestle through as a church, as people struggling to believe. But when we turn them into a test, when we turn them into conditions that Jesus must qualify for so that we can believe him, we've got the whole thing backwards. You see, Jesus is not in heaven going, oh, myself. Well, he just asked me about dinosaurs. What am I going to do? Oh, my. Jesus never cowers before our unbelief. Jesus never slavishly responds to our demands. He has no need for you to approve of him. He has no need to prove himself to you or me or anyone. But here's the deal. Verse 26. 
He graciously, graciously meets us in our doubts. Look at this. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them back in the old meeting spot. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom Aleichem. Peace be with you. And then he went straight to Thomas. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, I know what you've been thinking, son. Put your fingers right here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. This is breathtaking. Don't, don't pass over this. You, you know that feeling, uh, you ever go to a doctor's office and you walk in and it's always awkward and then the nurse tells you, okay, I just want you to strip down your underwear and you can put this over your lap if you want and sit on this, this uncomfortable vinyl, vinyl table with paper on top and you just wait there for an indefinite period of time till we decide to show up and anyone might open the door at any time. Okay, ready, go. And so you sit there and you're like, oh, this is weird. This is weird. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, humbles himself to disrobe for the unbelieving Thomas. Jesus loves Thomas enough to meet him in his doubts. This is the grace and love of our God. But don't mistake the grace for the truth that he goes on then to rebuke Thomas. That as he graciously reveals himself to Thomas, Jesus rebukes his unbelief. Stop doubting and believe. As Jesus graciously meets us in our doubts, he rebukes our unbelief. Listen, Jesus is not asking us to believe without evidence. He gives a lot of good evidence he, he really, that he really is who he claimed to be, that he really did fulfill prophecies, that he really did walk the earth and teach these things and say these things, that he really did do miraculous works, that he really did die and rise again. There are hundreds of eyewitnesses. There are great accounts that are, that are preserved in the scriptures and across history and across a billion lives on this planet. Jesus doesn't ask us to believe something without evidence. But when Thomas asks him to meet his conditions, Jesus rebukes him because he knows that no amount of evidence will satisfy human pride. There's a point at which evidence has nothing to do with it. One more piece of evidence is not the answer. There's a point at which you don't believe, not because of the evidence but because you say, I don't want to believe. I will not. Because if I believe, that means you are Lord and you are God, and I do not want that. When I was 14 years old, I've never actually told this to someone, so if it's too weird for you, just forget about it, okay? 14 years old, and um, big shocker here, but I struggled with lust. I mean, I've really struggled with lust. And I had this deep, deep inner conflict, and I didn't know what to do about it. And what made it a million times worse was the fact that I had read this Christian book that told me, 
oh, boys will be boys. Lust really isn't bad. And so at the same time, I'd read this Christian book that told me, oh, just give in to your lust. Do what you want. It's okay. And at the same time, I felt this horrible conviction that it was wrong, that it was evil, that it was not what God wanted in my life. And I remember vividly when this had come to a head, I was at a conference. I was at this dorm room all by myself. And I was struggling. And I just, I just prayed, God, I want to lust. But it doesn't feel right. And this book tells me it's okay, but I don't know what to think about it, Lord. And my prayer was this, God, I want to lust. If you do not want me to lust, if lust is really a sin, then I want you to knock on my door, send someone to knock on my door. Otherwise, I'm going to assume it's okay. And then I waited. (laughs) Just a second later, the door, there was a huge bang. I was terrified. (laughs) I was terrified. I, I ran to the door and threw it open, and there was nobody in the hallway. And there was no one around the corner, and there was nobody. God clearly answered my stupid prayer. And from that day, because of that, I have never since struggled with lust. (laughs) Ha ha ha, that's not true at all. (laughs) But that's the way it should be, right? Like, God answered my prayer. Like, this wasn't, this wasn't his condition. This was my condition. This is a real story. But you know what happened? Instead of that, instead of believing what had happened, you know what happened? I set the stupid condition. God, for whatever gracious reason, he actually answered my prayer immediately. And then I doubted. I thought, no, God doesn't knock on doors. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I'm just... Something happened, but that clearly wasn't God. Here's the craziness. I made up the conditions. God answered my prayers. And the problem was not a lack of evidence. It was that I did not want to believe. I don't pretend to speak for your experience, but I wonder if you know what I'm talking about right now. I wonder how many of our doubts actually spring from questions about the evidence, whether it's rational, whether it makes sense, and how many of them spring from a wicked heart that says, I don't want to believe. I don't want to. There's an author, uh, Joshua Harris, who uh, gives an illustration that I think is helpful. He says a lot of times people, when, when they look at the evidence over Jesus Christ, they come to it and they come to it thinking that they're like, it's like a job interview. They're trying to interview Jesus for the role of Savior. So they're like, hey, Jesus, thanks for coming. Come on in. I'll grab a seat. Coffee? Ah, okay. So uh, I've been looking over your resume. Very impressive here. Um, Hey, I did have a couple questions. There were a few blanks here. I noticed under formal education, it's blank, but, um, oh, I see omniscience. Okay, that, that'll, that'll be fine. Like, Jesus, I just have a couple quick questions for you. Like, I just want to be real, real serious here. I'm looking for a Savior who, uh, who doesn't meddle. 
I mean, you know, I, I'm all for that, that on-call 24-7 thing, right? Right? Yeah. But I'm really looking for more of a consultant or part-time position here. Um, let me just be real frank. How do you feel about me keeping control over my sex life and my finances? Good, good. Oh, one last thing. On the way out, could you, could you turn this into a, to a loaf of bread real quick? Just something I ask all the saviors to do when they come in. Great. We'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. Jesus. Show me something. Prove yourself to me. Friend, when you come to Jesus, you come to Jesus on his terms. We are not talking about someone who is in need of you. We are talking about the eternal Son of God who rules over the universe. We are not in a position to evaluate him. He is in a position to evaluate us. He has graciously given us reasonable and trustworthy evidence. He's he's given us evidence in the scriptures and written across history and written across a billion lives today. He doesn't ask us to believe anything without evidence. But neither does he accept our limited, finite minds as the ultimate measure and judge of reality. He will not perform for us. And he commands Thomas. And he commands us. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. This man who is famous for his doubts is now famous for one of the most crystal clear expressions of the absolute sovereignty and divinity of Jesus Christ. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John, the gospel writer, is going to stop everything and he's going to say this, hey, I bet you're asking right now, like, what about me? What about those of us who don't get a chance to see Jesus in the flesh? And he's going to say, that's why I wrote this. That's what this gospel is about. That's what this whole book is about. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, not just this scene right here, but the whole gospel of John, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has detailed the life of the miracles, the teachings, the prophecies, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus of Nazareth so that you may examine them for yourself, so that you may make a decision. Have you? Have you examined the evidence? Not only the evidence that's in the scriptures, which we're going to go through for the next eight weeks. I just want to encourage you to come. If, If you've got these questions, bring these questions with you. We're going to look at who Jesus is, who he was, what he did, what he said, what he claimed to be, to examine the evidence for ourselves. But it's not just about the evidence out there. The question is, have you examined your own heart? If you've asked all the questions and the logical conclusion is something that breaks all your categories, are you willing to accept it? May I submit to you that this is the most important question, not only in your life, but in the history of the world. Who is Jesus Christ? Nations have risen and fallen 
over this question. It not only means your life, but your eternity. Some of you have not yet seen the evidence, and for you, I just want to say, come along for the ride. This is one of those things, just come along for the ride. Join one of those small groups and show up and just say, you know, I don't believe any of this, and see what happens. And you small group leaders, be nice. And let's look at the evidence sincerely, honestly together. Some of you have examined the evidence, and you know that the reason you haven't taken that step is not because of a lack of evidence, but it's because your heart says, I don't want to believe. And I just want to say to you today, not I, but Jesus Christ, stop doubting and believe. It is through Him that there is life. That by believing in Him, we have life in His name. If you're at a point today where you've looked at the evidence and you've struggled and you're ready to make that step or ready to give that up, it's as simple as just telling Jesus and taking that step. It's stepping out there. The same way when he called his first disciples, they just turned aside all that they had. It was, it's repentance. It's letting go of what you have and grabbing hold of him. He asked the same thing to us today. If you've never made that decision, it's as simple as a prayer. I'm going to pray this, and if it's your heart, I just encourage you to pray along with me. Lord Jesus, there are many questions and doubts I have. Lord, I I don't have all the answers, but I know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I know that I can't save myself. I know that clinging to my doubts and my unbelief at this point no longer makes sense. So I confess by faith that you are good. You are enough that you really did die and rise again, and that your death means everything, that you took away my sins, and that by rising you proved that I can be right with God, that I can live with him forever, that someday, though I may die, someday I will live with you forever because of what you've done. I confess that your death and resurrection is enough. It's enough to forgive my sins. It's enough to give me new life. It's enough to give me hope. It's enough to heal our world. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.